Homeless Link is the national membership charity for frontline homelessness services. We work to improve services through research, guidance and learning, and campaign for policy change that will ensure everyone has a place to call home and the support they need to keep it. In this series of the Going Beyond podcast, we will discuss the effects of working in the homelessness sector on individual well-being, looking at managing stress, burnout, the effects of vicarious trauma, and the importance of debriefing and reflective practice. In each episode, we will speak to a guest who will tell us about their expertise, provide practical tips for improving well-being, and discuss the realities of working in the sector. I'm Jo Turner, National Practice Development Project Manager at Homeless Link, and I'll be your host. We hope you enjoy it. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Alianor Lumia-Cumberledge, clinical psychologist working in Edinburgh across two mental health teams. We'll discuss vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress and burnout and its effect on frontline staff, looking at what organisations can do to support. Well, thank you so much for being here today for the Going Beyond podcast. So to start us off, could you tell us a bit about yourself what you do uh, and the type of work you specialise in? Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist working in Edinburgh. I currently work across two community mental health teams, working largely with people experiencing sort of complex mental health difficulties, including things like psychosis. But prior to my clinical training, I worked in a drug and alcohol service and also before that worked in frontline homelessness services. And that's sort of where... My research passion lies, I think, but also I think I enjoy working with people who, yeah, have often had very complex lives. And I think having been a professional working in that setting, also really enjoy working with sort of other professionals um, and clinicians who work with this kind of population. Great, thank you. So, so this is the fourth episode of the podcast series. And so far we've spoken about burnout, um, using mindfulness to unpack stress and the importance of boundaries. So as we know, when you're working frontline in the homelessness sector, you can be exposed to quite a lot of trauma, either through witnessing distressing incidents or through someone sharing their experiences with you. So I thought it could be useful in this episode to talk about vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress and its effect on frontline staff and also look at what organisations can do to support staff. Um, So first, Lily, would it be possible for you to tell me and the listeners what is meant by vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress and what are the differences between these? Yeah, so they're words that are, they're terms that are often used sort of a bit interchangeably, um, though there are sort of distinctions between them. So vicarious trauma and secondary traumatic stress are both types of indirect trauma that we might experience when we've been hearing the stories or learning about the experiences of people who've experienced trauma. So I suppose the, the distinction that I think is important to draw between them is that secondary trauma can happen after you've heard someone's story just the one time um, and often really closely mirrors symptoms of PTSD. So things like hypervigilance, for example, or maybe having intrusions like dreams or flashbacks to a situation that someone talked about. And vicarious trauma tends to think more about the cognitive shifts that happen. So um, sort of the changes in your attitude or your worldview or your beliefs about yourself and others and the world that happen after you experience sort of repeated prolonged exposure to other people's suffering. Brilliant, thank you. So you mentioned briefly just at the beginning that you conducted your PhD research in this area, sort of on the factors affecting the mental health and well-being 
of frontline workers in homelessness services. So it would be great to hear a bit more about this research and your findings, if you're able to share. Yeah. So I, when I was doing this research, I suppose when I was putting together the study in the first place, I was thinking about, you know, how do we distinguish between these constructs that seem quite similar sometimes, but that actually, I think, are three quite distinct phenomenon and um, phenomena rather. And specifically, so I looked at PTSD, um, so that's post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary traumatic stress and burnout um, in the context of, again, frontline workers and homelessness services. And what I was interested in figuring out was whether there's a difference in the factors that contribute to people developing these difficulties or not. Why is it that maybe one person within a team seems to be coping okay and sort of ticking along while somebody else perhaps is becoming really overwhelmed or is really struggling. And I wanted to look at both the organisational factors for that. Um, So specifically, I looked at organisational culture and then also look at more individual factors like people's coping mechanisms and the way that they sort of respond to difficult situations. One thing that I also wanted to do is I think that anecdotally, we know that frontline workers and homelessness services are exposed to a lot of trauma work. And that's in various ways, that's both indirectly by hearing about service users' experiences, but also directly, because when you work with people who are really traumatized and distressed and who've had really difficult life experiences, sometimes that manifests in them becoming verbally or physically aggressive, uh, or people try to cope through using substances or self-harming. Um, people are so overwhelmed by pain that they might try to hurt themselves. And those are all things that as workers, we're then exposed to in our responses to that when we're trying to sort of respond to people. So I also wanted to try and have a bit of a, try and count up, tally up in some ways, you know, how much people are exposed to traumatic experiences at work. And the result was pretty high. Um, There's a lot of trauma exposure, which probably won't be a surprise to any listeners who've worked in a hostel or in a frontline service of any form. There were really high rates of people just being exposed to really difficult events at work. And just over a fifth of the sample scored on a PTSD measure to the extent that they would attract, they could attract a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is really high when compared to the general population, but also I think really shows that, yeah, people experience really difficult experiences at work. And this is effectively an occupational hazard. It's not something that we can just say, oh, it happens from time to time. Um, it's something that's really important for us to think about when we design services, support people, all of this. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, from experience, these kind of traumatic experiences and incidents and things become quite normalised, actually. And so they're not necessarily talked about as, you know, experiencing that indirect trauma. It is that, oh, this incident happened and so and so did this, this and this. And oh, yeah, it was a bit scary or whatever. And actually it just the seriousness of what you've experienced gets really taken away because it can happen fairly frequently. Like you said, like the level of trauma and stuff that, you know, the tally of incidents that people are exposed to is a lot. Um, And yeah, I think the more that happens with the more, we just think, oh, another day sort of working in the homelessness sector. And we don't kind of think about the effect that that has on individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it's also a cumulative effect. Experiencing one difficult thing fine, two difficult things, fine. But at some point, I suppose, where we see these difficulties emerge is when people's 
ability to cope has been overwhelmed in some way. So, for example, I found so in the last six months, over a third of the participants had experienced the death by suicide of a service user who they worked with closely. At least a third had received threats to their life or to the life of people close to them. Over a third of people had responded to an overdose. Those are all incidents that, that really build up and that really start to shape, you know, the satisfaction that you take from your work, the meaning you give to things, and just, I think, your ability to sort of carry on and support people when they're experiencing significant pain and you're also potentially experiencing quite a lot of pain or distress. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it would be really useful, potentially for listeners, to think about how vicarious trauma or secondary traumatic stress presents. So some examples of this. So what can we look out for in, you know, in staff members to really pick up on potentially they, they may be experiencing something like this as a result of indirectly witnessing trauma? Yeah, I suppose things that are worth sort of being aware of in general are things like having intrusions or flashbacks about incidents that have either happened at work or that somebody has recounted or shared with you. So things like having nightmares or having sort of memories coming up or, yeah, intrusive images or thoughts or experiences. Things like becoming more hypervigilant, maybe feeling more anxious, more on edge, like it's harder to sort of unwind and to relax. But also I think there's something to think about in terms of your, your views of the world and of other people. Um, so sort of a classic example, for example, for vicarious trauma might be somebody who works with a lot of survivors of domestic violence starting to sort of develop a belief that there's no such thing as a healthy relationship, really. Or actually, you know, people, intimate relationships always go wrong at some point and finding it by extension maybe harder and harder to trust their own partner or to feel safe in intimate relationships. Um, so it's worth kind of, yeah, taking a little bit of a step back sometimes and, and thinking about that a little bit. When we talk about burnout in particular, but it does extend to, to these different constructs, I think something that's also important is noticing when we start to become very distant from our work or maybe when our work doesn't affect us so much or it feels like it's not really something that we're, yeah, we're, we're maybe not really connected to it in the same way. Um, and I suppose the way that that's often been conceptualized is emotional exhaustion or depersonalization where you sort of feel like you're not really feeling the same response to this as you might in the past. And I think what's important to stress is that that's also a coping strategy that we use. Um, because if we allowed ourselves to feel devastated by every horrible thing we heard, that would be really difficult. But on the other hand, when we start to really disconnect emotionally from those experiences or from that content, that also suggests that maybe our coping mechanism of distancing ourselves is maybe happening too much or is becoming really intensive. Yeah, that's so true. And I think when I first started working in the homelessness sector, I think I was it was quite affected by a lot of things that I heard or things that I witnessed. And as time went on, I felt like I was better able to cope with that. And it's interesting to kind of reflect on that now and think, was that my kind of, yeah, the coping mechanisms kicking in and saying, right, don't kind of spend that time ruminating about that. Like you need to look after yourself or, but you know, it's hard to know, did it go too far in that actually I kind of, you know, cause things like this can lead to things like compassion fatigue. And actually you just, you, it's not that you don't care, but you don't have that overwhelming feeling of like, I really need to help this person. It's just like, you're doing your job and that's it. And I think it's, 
interesting to think about how do we find that balance of protecting ourselves, but also making sure we are still caring and we have got compassion. It's a difficult one, I think. Yeah, I think it's a tough balance to hold. And I, the, the phrase that I often use is that empathy is both an asset and a liability. It's an asset because it allows you to connect with people and to show compassion and care for their, for their suffering, for their experience, and to hopefully help to repair some of those experiences that they've had by providing you know, the experience of a safe relationship, of a caring relationship that isn't hurtful and abusive. But on the other hand, it can also be a liability because empathy and compassion are what lead us to really feel other people's suffering and to sometimes take that on to a degree that makes it difficult for us to engage in our own lives or to sort of continue to do the things that matter if we feel overwhelmed by that suffering or that pain. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. So in terms of um, kind of the, we've spoken about how kind of vicarious trauma and burnout and secondary traumatic uh, stress presents what then could be the the impacts of that so we spoke a bit about compassion fatigue but how can that impact people personally but also in their ability to do their work maybe I think one of the I think and I, and I think back to my own experiences probably um, of working in, in frontline work and I left um, the service that I worked at and in retrospect was experiencing symptoms of PTSD was also experiencing a lot of secondary trauma and also was quite burnt out I sort of had a bit of a trifecta going on and I think one of the things that for me was the most challenging was probably that I was no longer feeling the satisfaction from my work that for me is really protective and which research has shown previously and I think my research also showed is really protective against burnout that when we still feel a sense of meaning or fulfillment in our work that we're doing something that is important to us and that allows us to help others that is really protective against those things. So I think in addition to thinking about, you know, what's what's changed, it also means, you know, yeah, when I come home, am I drawing positives from my work? Am I still feeling recharged at some point during my week or not really? Um, and am I finding it harder and harder to sort of be present and connect with people? I think in, in people's personal lives that can manifest in sort of difficulties in maintaining their relationships, whether that's with partners or with family members or with children or with friends or finding it difficult to connect, I guess, with positive emotions as well as negative emotions. And those are all things where I think seeking professional support where possible is really beneficial. And I think there is more and more of an awareness within services, as this podcast kind of shows, that that we think about the emotional impact of our work um, and, and how that affects us outside of work and also within work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking back from my experience of working in different frontline services, there's definitely been times where, you know, I, I'm kept up at night because I'm thinking about something that's happened in that day or I'll come home from work and actually my ability to speak with my partner is pretty like limited because I feel very emotionally drained from that day. And... I think the more and more that happens day after day, you don't realise the impact it really has on you. And I think that kind of ties into this expectation that those who work in the homeless sector are very resilient. So, you know, whenever I've said, oh, this is the type of work that I do, you always tend to get the response, oh, I could never do something like that. That's so good. You know, you're so brave to be able to do that. And I'm like, no, it's not bravery at all. Um, it's... But it, there is that kind of expectation that you can deal with really difficult situations and manage those well. And so when there is that moment where actually 
you think, wow, I'm, I'm not feeling good after today, or it's been a really difficult couple of weeks. You kind of have to then question yourself like, oh, well, am I, am I actually as strong as I thought I was? And I think that can be a really difficult kind of realisation because you put that pressure on yourself to be this incredibly resilient person and it diminishes, I'd say, the, the reality of experience kind of secondary traumatic stress and burnout because you're like, oh, no, I just need to be more resilient. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, and, and I think that people cope in lots of different ways. Dark humour or gallows humour is sort of, has, is a well-established coping mechanism in lots of different settings including sort of health and social care and so people make light of difficult experiences sometimes because that is easier than acknowledging how painful some of those experiences are but I think there is a I, I think there's something really important about being able to to recognize that it's okay if things feel like they are too much because sometimes this is really painful we we do this kind of work because we care deeply about others usually and so it's understandable that we are moved by other people's pain as well and I suppose there's something really important around when we identify as somebody who does this work that is really hard and someone that you know you have to be it takes a certain kind of person to do this kind of work for example that it does, I think, leave people wondering sometimes if they are struggling to cope, you know, does this mean I'm not that person anymore? I'm not someone who's tough and who could just, you know, take it on the chin and just handle it all and, and get on with it. And does that mean that I don't really fit in with my team anymore? Does that mean that I'm not in a good place to work? Does this make me weak or not good enough? What, what does that really mean? And I think there's I think there can be a real stigma associated to struggling. There's a difficult difference between, gosh, you've really just had a tough day today, you know, someone kicked off at you or you had to respond to um, an overdose or whatever it was, it was a really intense situation and the sort of support that happens immediately after that of, okay, well, this was very difficult versus this was very difficult in the context of doing a job that is also difficult. And maybe this is another thing that has added to your sort of feeling of, oof, this work is, is challenging. I think... One of the things that has sort of struck me with the research that I did and, and research that I did at a master's level as well and other reading that I've been doing is that the things that lead people sometimes to leave this job, however, are not necessarily vicarious trauma and PTSD and secondary traumatic stress universally. And actually more things like burnout that is very closely tied less to the content of the work and more the structure of the work. It's not about, I've heard 10 people today tell me about horrific trauma and difficult experiences, but I've heard 10 people tell me about horrific trauma experiences. And also I don't have a desk to sit at to write up my notes. And also we're super understaffed. And so it doesn't feel safe always. Um, and, oh, someone's, you know, phoned in sick and I don't want to worry my colleagues by saying I really need to go home. So I'm going to stay a little bit longer. And also I've just had to tell another person today that they're going to have to rough sleep and that I can't help them any further because there's no accommodation available within the council. So the systemic stressors as well and the challenges of navigating that those systemic pressures, I think, are really cumulative as well. And actually, it seems that often those are the things that lead to people leaving as opposed to just um, 
I say just, but as opposed to just the content of the work itself. And I think there's a lot to be said for funding structures and commissioning in that as well, where if you don't know if you're going to have a job when the next funding bid goes through, or if you'll be absorbed into a different organisation and so on, it's really difficult to feel sort of stable and settled in your work. If you know that you've only got a set amount of time to work with a set number of people, and then you've got to move them on, even though that's not necessarily how it works, it does become really frustrating and difficult to kind of continue to do that day in, day out. Yeah, that's really, really interesting that you said that actually it's that wider wider systems that have that impact of kind of keeping staff in, in their roles and, you know, the short-term funding agreements where you only get year-on-year funding, so you never know if you're going to be out of a job. And actually, if we had more security in that area and uh, the right support in the workplace and the right funding and things you can do your job well actually we're then able to cope better and actually it's interesting you say that it's not the not the kind of dealing with you know difficult incidents and witnessing and hearing tra- trauma that causes people uh, to kind of leave jobs and I think that's kind of what a lot of people suspect it to be but it's the wider systems in in play that really create that burnout and it's how can we yeah, prioritise all, sorting all of that out so that we can kind of keep people in their jobs because it's just a kind of a vicious cycle at the moment with kind of recruitment and retention in the homelessness sector is that there's just never enough staff and then that leads to more burnout and then more people leave and it just seems to be a real, real issue at the moment. So one of the things that I did in my in my study and it was granted a fairly small sample but I had looked at whether people worked in a statutory service or in a third sector service And 40% of participants who worked in a statutory service had been there for more than 10 years. 7% of people working in the third sector had been in their job in that current service for more than 10 years. And in contrast, about 75% of people who worked in the third sector had been in their job for under five years in that role. So there's a huge amount of turnover as well. That means that all of the important things that happen around building institutional knowledge and team dynamics and having teams that, you know, colleagues who you build a really strong relationship with, who also can say, I remember what you were like two years ago, and it seems like maybe you're having a particularly rough time, you know, do you need maybe some some time doing a slightly different job? Or, you know, those colleagues who can also check in with you and who know you well, we don't have that as much in the third sector and a huge amount of service provision is provided by the third sector as well. Yeah, that's so true. I think it would be really interesting as well to to touch on kind of, I know we spoke before about post-traumatic growth. So what can, if there is sort of uh, an incident potentially, or someone has shared with, with a worker quite a, a traumatic event that's happened to them in the past, what can organisations do to take kind of learning and growth away from a traumatic event rather than kind of not not address it and potentially that, that staff member then kind of suffering potentially in silence as they haven't been able to kind of talk it through. So it'd be interesting to hear about that. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a balance between jumping in to provide support after an incident immediately versus also allowing somebody's sort of natural coping resources and skills to come in. Um, but I think things like... Reflective practice groups, clinical supervision, case review groups, team formulations, all of those are really helpful as a way of helping people to make sense of 
their experiences at work, um, making sense of their responses and maybe service user responses and kind of figuring out how those things fit together. And a huge part of that and, and of sort of the hypothesized effectiveness behind that is also around hearing shared experiences with other colleagues as well and being able to sort of not feel alone in your response to something or not feeling like you're the only person who has been affected by something. I think you've got uh, an episode about debriefing in particular that sort of will go into a lot more detail about that. But I think there is something about giving space to acknowledge difficult situations and encouraging people to use whatever methods they use usually that help them to, to cope. And people will, some people need to talk about things immediately afterwards. Some people need a little bit of space. Some people want both. Some people are quite happy to, to talk through something with someone who they feel more comfortable with, like a peer or a colleague rather than a manager. And it's worth kind of thinking about those in, in different ways. I think, I think something else that kind of comes to mind more broadly is the way that organizations learn from incidents and what we take from that. The evidence sort of suggests that if you're somebody who is already prone to rumination, for example, or to blaming yourself when things go wrong, that is perhaps potentially more predictive of sort of developing distress after a challenging event um, or after multiple challenging events. And I suppose one of the things that we can think about is those sound like very individual processes. You know, I blame myself. I tend to ruminate. But actually, what, what are we doing as organizations after an incident that maybe maintain that? Are we rehashing every detail in extensive detail with a lot of, oh, but what could you have done differently at that point, at this point, which might reinforce somebody's rumination cycles, for example. Are we um, potentially, just in the wording that we use, I once worked at an organization, this was years ago um, in, in North America, where when there was an incident, the incident report at the top, it said staff member responsible. And what they meant was who was staff member involved. But actually, the end result of that is that when you are having to write up this incident report that breaks down the situation in detail, it's very difficult not to come away going, oh yes, I'm, I'm the person who's on the hook for this, or I'm the person who was responsible for this. And if you're someone who's already quite likely to blame yourself, maybe, or to really take on, take on some of that responsibility, that can really maintain that and make it quite difficult to sort of look forwards and, and move away from that. Yeah, definitely. I think language is incredibly powerful. I think when we chatted before, I said about a time where I'd kind of less about language, I guess, but more about my name on a piece of paper that potentially impacts someone in a negative way. So, you know, working in a hostel and giving someone a, a warning letter and saying that I, um, you know, was, you know, putting a visitor ban because of this, this and this. And that actually meant that that relationship between me and that individual living in that hostel kind of broke down a bit because it was that, that lack of trust um, because I'd kind of said... I was the one that signed that paper. Um, so I think it's really important how we kind of, even like you said, just stretch, stretch the forms so that there isn't that kind of blame on that individual. Because yeah, staff member responsible, you're going to immediately put that blame on you. And I've, you know, and, and just, that's no way of kind of debriefing. That is just you just sitting there ruminating, being like, what else, what could I have done to prevent this? And often it's nothing. You, you couldn't have done anything to prevent something from happening. So it's really difficult, yeah. Is there anything else that you would wanted to touch on in terms of kind of the the seriousness, I guess, of um, experiencing secondary traumatic stress or vicarious trauma? Because I think, I think, like I said earlier, 
sometimes it becomes just like, oh, you know, just get on with it. And actually, like you've said, it can actually lead to people having PTSD symptoms, which is incredibly serious, serious. And I think it's really important that we highlight how serious this can be in the homelessness sector and not just brush it off as, oh, it's a bit of stress. You've had a hard day. So I'm not sure if you have any more thoughts on that. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, when I think about, um, you know, when, when I think about my own experiences, for example, I would have I would have really quickly brushed off any sort of queries about being traumatised because of a workplace incident. I was, while I was working at a homeless service, I was also writing a dissertation on secondary traumatic stress and burnout. And yet I was feeling really deeply ashamed at the idea that workplace incidents could affect me really intensely. I, I think I was you know, pretty deeply in denial. And I remember um, somebody having mentioned to me being like, you know, you, you sound like you're having a rough time with things. And I was just like, I was, what, what do you mean? And sort of really bristled at it. And I think it has become much more acceptable to say, you know, I'm a bit burnt out. We're all burnt out. We're all overwhelmed and overworked and underpaid and under-resourced and understaffed and blah, blah, blah. And so saying I'm feeling a bit burnt out feels much more socially acceptable and I think professionally acceptable than recognising that actually what I'm experiencing is, is, is quite significant distress, that I'm potentially experiencing trauma symptoms myself. Or I'm sort of reliving some of the really horrible experiences I've heard people tell me about. And that's affecting my ability to do my work or to do the things that, that matter to me. And so I think there's something that's, I think it feels much more acceptable to say that you're burnt out than to say that you're traumatized, especially when traumatized sort of implies potential fitness to practice issues or whether people need absence leave or whether occupational health should get involved and also the interventions that are required for that and the support that's required to kind of help somebody after that. So when I was when I was doing the study, I think I, I didn't want to assume that all distressing workplace events are inherently traumatic, but also wanted to recognise that cumulatively those incidents can be very traumatic. So I think that there is something about kind of yeah, re- recognizing that, and I think I think that when we allow people to acknowledge when things are difficult, without dismissing it, without saying this is the job you signed up for, or well, of course it's hard, of course there's drug-related deaths, you're working with lots of people who are drug users. When we sort of allow people to acknowledge that things are difficult, and we try to alleviate our colleagues' pain or make them feel less alone in that. I think actually that in itself makes it a lot easier for people to cope because this is deeply relational human work. You can say that this it, it is quite natural and understandable that people would feel distressed after working with people who are deeply distressed because we're working often with people who have had no safe relationships. And so that you can find someone, you know, a sleeping bag or you can help them to get temp or you can help someone with their benefits application but actually often the, the biggest intervention we're doing is providing or attempting to provide a relationship that is safe but relationships that are also unsafe for us as humans because they carry the potential for, for hurt and so I think when we value relational work and value that and recognize the risks that are inherent with it that means we can also recognize the rewards that come with that and, and at least for myself, but I think for, for a lot of people, those relational experiences are also the bits that do make this work really rewarding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important what you said about, it, it seems 
very much more accepted to say oh, I'm really burnt out like and people just like oh yeah yeah me too whereas I think like in my last job when I managed a team if someone said to me I'm actually I think I'm kind of experiencing some secondary trauma because of this I think if I'm honest I would have found it difficult to know what to say in that moment potentially to say oh okay because that immediately thinks oh wow this is really 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 serious but I think the more people are open about their experiences and are really honest about how something is affecting them the better we can you know organizations can support that individual rather than passing it off as oh it's just you just burnt out you're fine you know you'll, you'll move past this and actually maybe there is some some more real kind of targeted support that that individual needs to to get through this and, and to to cope in the future so yeah I think it's something about kind of normalizing that expression as well and not just you know passing it off as stress and burnout it is really really important so I think that's all we have time for but is there anything else that you wanted to to touch on at all no I, I think I'm I'm really glad that these conversations are happening so much um I think it's really really valuable um and I think there's something to be said about also just conversations between colleagues happening I think something that had been really powerful was at some point a colleague sort of saying you know you seem like you're I would have expected you to be more upset about this and we just learned about a, a, a patient, a service user's death by suicide. And, and they were sort of like, you know, I would have expected you to be more upset by this. And I was like, well, of course, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm upset. But actually hearing that and then saying, you know, I'm, I'm feeling pretty, pretty devastated. I don't really know what to think. Kind of clued in for me that why, why am I not feeling so upset? Why am I feeling quite distant and detached from this? And what does this really, really mean? And I'd had a another colleague where we'd been in a reflective practice group and a comment had been made by the facilitator where they'd said you know it's interesting because it feels like at the moment I'm hearing a lot of anger and frustration directed towards service users where it feels like a few months ago that anger was directed towards the system actually and it was it was less you know oh this person is is impossible I don't want to do and more why isn't there why is it so hard to get this person the support that they desperately need and I think that had been a really useful sort of shift in perspective going ah yes okay when we are sort of looking at individuals and not looking at systems when we do sort of detach from our own personal feelings I think those are all signs that that there's probably systemic and organizational stuff that needs to be to be done but also we maybe need to find our own ways of soothing ourselves and supporting ourselves through connecting usually to, to our own needs, but also to the needs of our colleagues and of the people who we sort of, yeah, trust and feel safe with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Lily. It's been, it's been so interesting to hear about your research and actually really shed light on the realities of working uh, in this sector. I, I really hope that people who listen to this episode are, in, are encouraged to share with their colleagues about how they're feeling so we can move away from the notion that we just need to be more resilient, basically. But yes, thank you so much, Lily, for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. To keep up to date with the latest goings on at Homeless Link, please follow us on Twitter at Homeless Link. If you're interested in training and development opportunities for yourself, your team or your organisation, 
get in touch by emailing training at homelesslink.org.uk. We have a range of courses that help staff and organisations develop the skills needed to tackle current issues and improve services.